California, California, here I come to, with a coffee pot and skillet, I'm coming to you. Nothing's left in Oklahoma for us to eat or do. Here comes the dust storm, watch the sky turn blue. You'd better get out or it'll smother you. In August 1940, when she recorded this poem, Flora Robertson was one of more than 300,000 migrants struggling on the road to make a living in depression-torn California. Like many, she'd come from Oklahoma, then the centre of the Dust Bowl, the drought-stricken Southern Plains region of the United States, which suffered severe dust storms during a dry period in the 1930s. We looked in the north and thought it was the Blue Norther coming, such a huge black cloud just looked like smoke out of a train stack or something. Today, her recording is held at the Library of Congress. And my husband was out after the cows, and he stumbled up against the barbed wire fence, and he followed the fence till he come to the house, is the way he was able to get to the house. Our house was sealed, but that dust come through somehow. By all around the doors and the windows, the dust would be all piled so high. And you just had to mop real good when it was over to get it out. You just couldn't get it out no other way. So the dust had different colors when it would settle. It had different smells. Some was acrid, some was peppery, some would make you nauseous. Sarah Phillips is professor of history at Boston University and the author of This Land, This Nation, Conservation, Rural America and the New Deal. You know, it wasn't a consistent kind of dust. It would always surprise you with the color, the texture, the smell, the density. It must have been quite frightful. And we just choked and smothered. And uh, we had to tie wet rags over our mouth just to keep from smothering. From the Rothermere American Institute in Oxford, this is The Last Best Hope, the podcast that looks at America from the outside in. I'm Adam Smith. The, the, the context here is that these, this part of America, Oklahoma and West Texas and Missouri and Kansas and the, and the parts of America that were so badly affected by this ecological disaster were the areas which had been settled by uh, families. There were small farms who were, as it were, living or trying to live the American dream. This is what the, the promised America had been for 200 years up until that point, offering the prospect of the ownership of productive land. Other Americans would have looked upon these people as old-stock Americans. These were the people who had fought with Washington at Valley Forge, who had this proud tradition of crossing the country as pioneers. They would have seen these as 100% Americans, undeserving of this particular uh, bitter experience. In this episode of The Last Best Hope, I ask what the Dust Bowl was and why it mattered. The horrifying dust storms described there by Flora Robertson were the final straw for thousands of farming families in the southern plains in the early 1930s. The truth was that it was harder and harder to scrape a living from the soil. They had no choice in the end but to gather their belongings and trek west. I asked Sarah Phillips how many migrants were displaced in this way. Well, numbers vary, and the best estimates have about one million leaving the southern plains during that time. I mean, well, when we talk about the Dust Bowl, we're really talking about two two events. 
One was the actual geographical area, the place of severe wind erosion, which was the panhandle areas of Texas, Oklahoma, parts of New Mexico, Colorado, and Kansas. And in that area, three out of four farmers did not migrate. They stayed there with all sorts of government assistance, public assistance to remain in farming. Most of the migrants from Oklahoma came from eastern Oklahoma, which was not a Dust Bowl area. And that's the second work that the Dust Bowl name did, was to sort of give a label to all of these migrants um, from Oklahoma. Those from eastern Oklahoma were leaving because of poverty, because of a quite vicious, entrenched system of cotton tenancy. And they moved west to California, also looking for jobs in agriculture. The rural migrants joined a long tradition stream of wandering, and it wasn't that clear at the beginning just how distinct this particular movement and migration was. It really took the work of artists like John Steinbeck, like Dorothea Lange, like Woody Guthrie, along with attention to the political crisis in California for Americans to think about this migration. But I think one of the things that also differentiated these artists, perhaps from the Okies themselves, is is the artists really infused a lot of their stories with kind of an anti-capitalist bent. They blamed the speculators for putting the people in this condition. Woody Guthrie's songs and Dust Bowl ballads, he says, the gambling man is rich and the working man is poor. You know, he sort of gives it a class analysis, I think, as does John Steinbeck, uh, when, you know, one of the members of the Jode family doesn't exactly understand the system, the system of tractors that has tractored them out and just says, who do I shoot? It's not one individual. It's a collection of banks and financial relationships. So, and I think that Lang and her husband, Paul Taylor, also, you know, had this sense that mechanization, that modern agriculture was driving these people to be victims. This is a photograph of the aftermath of one of the many dust storms, and it's a photograph that to anyone who's ever been on a small farm would spell absolutely ruin. Linda Gordon is Professor Emerita of History at New York University and the author of Dorothea Lang, A Life Beyond Limits. She showed me one photograph by Lang of a dust storm. It shows farm buildings that look as if they're sort of marooned in the midst of a Sahara desert. And there's a heap of sand and what look like dried up plants in the foreground. It's very important to try to understand this from the perspective of small farmers. And that was uh, Dorothea Lange's remit. She was hired by the Franklin Roosevelt administration. She worked for the Farm Security Administration, which is within the Department of Agriculture. And within Farm Security, there was this very small project that uh, included at peak maybe uh, 10 to 12 photographers, but Lang was the only photographer on the West Coast. And what was the Farm Security Administration's aims? Farm Security was really uh, one of the more progressive um, 
operations within the New Deal, and it was really aiming, aiming to look at trying to help small farmers rather than either the big plantation owners in the southeast or the huge corporate uh, farms in California. And why would a government agency that was designed to, in some ways, try to support small farmers through the Great Depression, why would such an agency employ photographers? I think people were just catching on to the power of the visual. And this is also a technological uh, issue because it was in the 1930s for the first time that newspapers were able to really mass produce uh, images in a, in a decently recognizable form. What the administration wanted to do was to use these pictures to build support for administration policies. It was a propaganda operation. And Dorothea Lange actually said uh, famously, well, everything is propaganda for what you believe in, isn't it? We think of the New Deal kind of as a response to the industrial crash, when actually um, rural incomes had lagged far behind industrial income starting all through the 20s right I mean, all through the, the 1920s the, the 1929 crash and um one of the themes that i explore in uh, my first book is how uh, agricultural underconsumption was part of these analyses among the new dealers of what had caused the depression you know so if industrial workers had low wages, and they weren't capable of reviving a modern economy. Farmers represented, who, who made on average a third the amount of industrial workers, and this, and this is just lumping them all together, of course, we're quite aware of inequalities and differences within agriculture. You know, they represented a population whose low incomes had helped precipitate the depression, but actually made recovery much more difficult. So you have to turn these farmers into consumers. And nobody knew that with World War II, industrial recovery was around the corner. Everyone kind of, kind of the new dealers, the people who staff the farm recovery organizations are really struggling with you know, how, what do we do about rural poverty? Nobody could imagine an American economic recovery without a return to some kind of prosperity in rural America. Exactly. That was a, what seemed a well-founded economic analysis of the um, consequences for the economy as a whole of the drop in, in income among agricultural workers. But there's also something else going on there, perhaps, is that Sarah about there's a sort of there's a Jeffersonian idea. There's an assumption, is there, that in the end that's where the real America is, and that if the if the farmers, if the small family farms aren't prospering, then it doesn't really matter how successful the the cities and the businessmen and the factory workers might be, that that's where the heart of America is. Exactly. That takes hold and that has a very influential part to play in the early years of the New Deal. Another aspect in what makes it kind of an environmental rather than just an agricultural policy is that a lot of the New Dealers thought that um, the United States had overexpanded, that farming had moved into lands that fundamentally was environmentally unequipped to handle it. They had moved on to arid lands. They had moved on to marginal lands. 
I think that the New Dealers, in terms of the planes, those who were the most radical in their environmental sensibility, felt that the planes should have never been plowed, mm. that the kind of golden age of planes agriculture had been ranching because it was perceived as we wouldn't they wouldn't have used the word sustainable, that, but they would have used the word permanent. That's a more permanent form of agriculture because it leaves the vegetative cover intact. It leaves the, it leaves the grasses intact. Of course, for contemporary audiences in our current moment, uh, we should understand that, you know, Indian removal confining to reservations had actually um, been the prime mover of, you know, what facilitated the ranching economy. And of course, the native use of the grasslands had been even more per per even more permanent than right. something like ranching. But Western states did not want ranching uh, to be the goal of the New Deal. And they fought viciously against the idea that depopulation was the answer. They wanted to remain crop farmers. And because ranching doesn't support as many people, it's not seen as democratic. Those cattle kings were seen as big business, and rightly so. They were funded by British capital, just like the railroads. And so the ranching economy was seen as something that was going to have to yield to those family farmers, going to have to yield to the small farms. And so the government puts a lot of effort into convincing large portions of the Great Plains that they can remain in crop farming. But the government also purchases, purchases millions of acres of tax delinquent and blown out land and restores them to grass. And so you get in the New Deal, restorative in the New Deal, you get a restorative um, set of policies that stabilize the region as well as direct assistance to the crop farmers who stay there. So I want to talk about a couple of examples of the photographs that that Dorothea Lang took. One of them, which is entitled Hitchhiker shows well you describe what it shows it's it's a it's a family by 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 the side of the road she had a she had a knack for using images of people to uh project very very emotional intense feelings and what you see here is that, first of all the very isolation of these people the photograph in the way she printed it and she could, of course, have focused it in and enlarged the people, but she leaves them rather small in a fairly desolate uh, place moving along a highway. The, there's a man and a woman, and the woman is holding the baby, and there's only one relatively small suitcase with them. They have had to leave taking almost nothing of their belongings in the hopes that by getting rides and going to the West, they're going to find some other opportunity. Dependent on other people to take them there as well. They're just waiting in the hope that somebody comes along and can pick them up. I'm, I'm struck by the, the, the composition of the photograph is very striking. As you described it, the figures are, are relatively small in comparison to the size of the frame. Um, the, I think it seems to me that I'm assuming that's a road leading westward to California, in which case the, the photograph was taken in the mornings. You can tell by the, the shadows from the position of the sun. So this is a hot morning. Um, we 
with the photographer are, are standing, as it were, in the east and, and looking west. And the, the central figure there in, the, in a trilby hat, the dad, the father, the husband, in his short jacket, uh, is, is standing looking, hoping for a ride to come along. Uh, and what you can see as you look across the, the horizon line in the photograph, it almost seems as if on the far right-hand side, as you're going towards the west, towards where the road is leading, you can almost imagine that it looks more built up. I think there's a car there in the distance. There appears to be some trees. There may even be some buildings. It's almost like in this little photograph, you can sort of see the promised land at the vanishing point of the horizon. They have had to leave taking almost nothing of their belongings in the hopes that by getting rides and going to the West, they're going to find some other opportunity. So it is an image of this deracination where people are ripped away from their roots just as the soil had been had its uh, the the plants that held it together ripped away, so it's a very very powerful sense of talking about quote unquote human erosion that these people have had to leave a place where we might assume they may have lived for generations, going to a place in the hope of some kind of rescue. When you say that her work was propaganda, and and in the most sort of literal sense it does seem as if it was because she was paid by the government because they had a particular political objective it was they were objectives supporting the new deal programs with which dorothea lang and her husband paul taylor were with entirely in sympathy but how does that affect uh, how we should view the photographs knowing that they were in this sense propaganda well, of course, this raises the most one of the most combative and extraordinary questions in the field of photography, which is what is objectivity, and do we expect any photographs to be objective, um, especially in an era at that time where people assumed that a photograph was an exact image of reality rather than something that was constructed by a photographer in the way that a painter would construct it. But, you know, she was also limited by her employer's view about what was important. Uh, one of the most significant ways of, uh, or one of the most telling facts about that is in this whole period, one third of all of her photography was photography of people of color. But the Farm Security Administration would not release any of those photographs. As her boss said, people are not ready for this. And they had the feeling that only if the victims were white uh, could they um, could they uh, create some sympathy for their predicament. The million or so migrants who moved west from the Texas Panhandle and Oklahoma and Arkansas and the other places that you've listed, what's the story of these migrants when they arrived in California. It's not really noticed at first when they begin crossing into the state border in 1934 or 35. And communities aren't that angry about them. When growers and rural California communities become really angry is when it's clear that these are families who intend to settle and stay there. California is always dependent on migrant labor, but it's been non-white 
It was Mexican, Chinese, Filipino. And those workers were largely male who moved, who followed the crops, who didn't stay. These were white Americans who wanted to stay with their families. They enrolled their children in schools, raising the burden on local communities. They, be, they drew welfare and they voted. <laughs> and so they began voting for Democrat. They began, they voted for the Democratic governor in 1938. And so it's because of their intention to stay that you know, provoked such a vicious reaction among the growers in California. They wanted their labor to pick the crops and then leave. And then leave without being political actors, without becoming part of the policy. And yet they, they, they stayed. And then World War II came and, and the so-called Oki migrants then were able to move into the industrial workforce as military industrial production took off in California in the 40s. Yes, exactly. And so uh, during the 1930s, there had been uh, repatriation campaigns to send Mexicans back to Mexico. And this is, you know, in the history of sort of Mexican Americans, this is quite you know, a tragic moment because citizens, non-citizens are rounded up, encouraged to go back. Support, supported by Franklin Roosevelt, yep. right? I mean, not 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 the thing that, that that we often associate with him, but but he he was a big supporter of Mexican repatriation. But World War Two presented the opposite problem because all of a the sudden there wasn't enough agricultural labor anywhere, not just in California, but uh, you know, in many places across the American West, in particular. And so the United States, through the Department of Agriculture, begins to bring Mexicans back, but also to use prisoners of war. And there's a new boogeyman in California, which is, of course, is the Japanese. And so, you know, World War II starts the wheels that then um, bring the federal government back into supplying a migrant labor force to California in the West but this labor force, again, is non-white, not attached to families in the same way. And so some scholars think that the arrival of the Okies actually impeded the kinds of reforms you might have needed for agricultural labor because the Okies resisted unionization. They did not want to be, they did not really want to join unions. They certainly joined in strikes spontaneous strikes for particular wages or working conditions, but they were hesitant to join labor unions. Whereas Mexican workers in 1933 and 34 had engaged in major union activity and had begun that work of, um, that, that begun, begun that work of agricultural labor organizing. Uh, so some people think that the Oki migration prevented exactly the process that someone like Dorothea Lang would have liked and her husband, Paul Taylor. They wanted this to shine a spotlight on California industrial agriculture. They wanted the Okies to be uh, the poster children for unionization and demanding of rights for migrant labor. And I think the Okies resisted that uh, that role. Why? Sociologists and historians who have studied this question think in large part it has a lot to do with that, that Jeffersonian individualism that you were talking about, uh, that rural people coming impoverished, uh, 
beaten down, aren't ready to see themselves as part of an industrial workscape. They were also deeply religious, um, having different Protestant, charismatic, evangelical forms of religion, which did not uh, translate easily into union organization. And also that they had um, uh, a sense of politics that was radical in a sense, but was radical in so far as it was about creating and preserving family farms. Let's talk about Migrant Mother, um, which is unquestionably uh, Dorothea Lange's most famous photograph. Tell us the story of that photograph, Linda. This is a photograph that among uh, photographers for a time was a bit controversial because uh, we know from a whole series of photographs that she took that she asked the two young girls who were on either side of the woman, she asked them to look away because she wanted absolutely nothing to draw the eye away from the extraordinary face of this woman who we now know was called Florence Thompson. The situation was one in which there, there was a much larger family than one sees there, two small children and a baby uh, literally nursing in her arms. But the, her husband and older children had gone to look for a way to repair uh, their broken down old car that they were using. And some people have called this the most famous photograph in the world. So she had no idea, Dorothea Lang, when she sent off this photograph of Migrant Mother, that it would become the the iconic uh, photograph that it was to become. She couldn't have predicted this would be the image of all the, the many hundreds or thousands she took. Absolutely uh, not. Which absolutely not. And I'm sure she afterlife. was, over the years, absolutely flabbergasted by seeing how often it was reproduced. In fact, she said at some point later, uh, that's not my picture anymore. I don't feel like I own that picture. Uh, what's the relationship between how you think the Dust Bowl is is remembered today in you know in popular culture and how you understand this historical moment and problem as a, as a historian? When I teach the Dust Bowl, my college students don't have a memory of it. They they are new to it. Interesting. If they have a memory of it, they've seen Migrant Mother. And they see that kind of exactly yeah. how she intended it. You know, this is a this is a victim of the depression. Here is the rural victim of the depression, and so they've collapsed rural poverty with economic devastation with the Dust Bowl in ways that Americans also did in the 1930s. So it takes a bit of work to describe the what the Dust Bowl was geographically, agriculturally, environmentally. I think so in thinking about your question, I think the answer is it's become kind of in, now it's become kind of a symbol of endurance, resilience, uh, surviving, um, kind of the human condition, what it's capable of surviving, enduring resilience. Um, and so I think the danger there is, is forgetting a lesson that we have to apply in so many other areas that public assistance, that public care 
plays a large role in who can endure and who does make it and who can stick it out. That is, memory often leads us to think that private actions, private strength, individual endurance played key roles. It's not easy or as fun to remember the variety of alphabet agencies and, you know, then later that came to the rescue and that are part of the fabric of that farming community. So I think that that's probably, you know, how I see it as different, how, how my scholarly understanding is different from whatever public memory I can sort of pinpoint today. I was speaking to the historians Sarah Phillips and Linda Gordon. Nothing captures the Dust Bowl migration or even the Great Depression more broadly, as well as Dorothea Lang's migrant mother. It's a great piece of art. It tells a story in a single image. We're drawn to the eyes of the mother. There seems to be so much pain there, and yet she clearly has the strength to endure. We stare at that image, wondering what the future holds for that little family. We don't actually need to wonder, though, because in the late 1970s, a reporter tracked down the subject of Lang's photo. As Linda Gordon mentioned... It was a lady called Florence Owen Thompson, then in her late 70s and living in a mobile home in Modesto, California. She'd been born in Oklahoma of Cherokee descent and spent her working life after moving to California as a migrant farm worker. Thompson's story connects into powerful American myths, all the more so when we know that she had Native American heritage. Like a million other so-called Okies, she kept on moving west when her chances of a better life were being suffocated by dust and depression. She never became rich, never owned her own property, but she kept moving, kept migrating, because she had to and because she could. And in doing so, she captures as well as anyone the restlessness and the searching in American culture. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope, the podcast about America, its ideas and ideals from the Rothermere American Institute in Oxford University. And if you've enjoyed this program, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The producer was Emily Williams, and I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye. <laughs>